Well, thanks, Bert. Let me encourage everyone to keep their Bibles open there in Matthew's Gospel as we continue into our second week on this great uh, Gospel account of our Lord Jesus. And for anyone who wasn't here last week, we had a bit of an introduction to the Gospel in its entirety. We are, of course, going to be honing in on the Beatitudes, those blessed are the statements that Bert read for us just a moment ago. But we kind of panned back and had a broad look at what Matthew's Gospel is primarily concerned with. And I hope you came to see that what Matthew's key focus is, is to show us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And we looked at that through three particular ways. The idea that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one in the line of David from the tribe of Judah who would fulfill all of those prophecies made about God's coming anointed one. We also saw that Jesus is the new and better Moses, the one who ushers in a new and better covenant. And we considered how Matthew develops that image, particularly in the early chapters of his gospel. And finally, we thought about how Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, how Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, God made flesh dwelling amongst his people. And those three categories scattered throughout Matthew's gospel really seek to highlight, particularly to the Jews, but also to us, how Jesus fulfills all of those Old Testament expectations. And Matthew, of course, tells the story of Jesus, showing who he is and how he acted, where he was born and how he fulfills the various prophecies that he does. And that takes place through all of Matthew's writing. But as he shares that story, Matthew also weaves together not just the history, but the theology that Jesus brings. So you get the narrative of Jesus' life and ministry, of his death and resurrection, and you also have paired with that the teaching of Jesus. And they come together in a sort of seamless package. And as you read Matthew, you really do get that sense of eyewitness account as well as ethical, moral teaching that Jesus offers to his followers. And as we saw in that reading from Bert just a moment ago, Jesus' primary focus in his teaching is on the kingdom of heaven. He begins his Sermon on the Mount with that word, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He concluded that section that Bert read for us with the promise that if you do not have uh, sorry, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And when he began his ministry a couple of chapters ago, he begins preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' primary teaching, as depicted by Matthew, is all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And what we need to realize as we seek to engage with Jesus' teaching in Matthew's gospel is that the kingdom of heaven has both a now and not yet capacity to it. That is, it is very much present now with the coming of Christ 
and yet it also anticipates his return, his second coming, where the kingdom will reach its fullness. That's why Jesus can on the one hand say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that is, it's present, it's here, and you need to repent now. And at the same time, he'll teach his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, urging that God's fullness might be realized in his full kingdom in the near future. The kingdom of heaven is both a now and not yet concept. And that's important to have in the back of our minds as we work through Matthew's teaching. You see, there are numerous teaching portions in Matthew's gospel. Following the introduction to Jesus' narrative, they fall into five distinct sections. And of course, these sections do overlap and work together, but you can categorize the five quite clearly. The first section that Jesus offers is his Sermon on the Mount, and that's primarily concerned with discipleship. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the four other sections that he have has are that of mission, parables, life in the church, and finally, end times. And these sections break down like this. He has discipleship in 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 10, with the sending out of the apostles, Jesus speaks about mission. And we read there, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel, and as you go, proclaim this message. And unsurprisingly, the message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In chapter 13, Jesus picks up on his parables and teaches the people. The disciples come to ask him, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replies, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you and not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. And you see in that section of Matthew's gospel, Jesus' teaching all comes in that parabolic form where he gives different stories and illustrations to make his point. Points that will only ultimately be understood by those who are part of his kingdom. In chapter 18, Jesus speaks of the church. He speaks of lost sheep and the calling in of those who would be his people. He speaks of sin in the church and matters of church discipline. As well as that, he speaks of forgiveness and how Christians, Christ followers, are to bear with one another. His final teaching section comes in chapters 23 and 25 where Jesus speaks of end times, the destruction of the temple, the second coming of Christ, and he urges his people to be prepared, to be living lives that anticipate his return, even though that return, he says, will be unexpected like a thief in the night. In Matthew 24:45, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Jesus' final plea to his people is to live as if he is about to return, expecting him to come back. And so I hope you can see that's a very brief overview, I know. 
But despite primarily being an eyewitness testimony to Jesus' life, despite being an historical account of who Jesus was and how he fulfilled prophecy, despite giving us insight into the personal life and witness of our Lord Jesus, Matthew has painstakingly crafted his gospel so that we can see a wealth of Jesus' own teaching ministry and that we might see instruction for our life if we are those who would follow in Jesus' ways. And perhaps in amidst all that teaching, we find our study for today, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' greatest or at least most known sermon, which we're going to be spending the remainder of our time considering. So back into Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5 through to 7, where we find the Sermon on the Mount. This is, as I mentioned in passing, Jesus' discourse on discipleship. It is here that he teaches his people how we should live. And it contains, I trust, many familiar passages. The Beatitudes, which were read for us. The Lord's Prayer, perhaps one of the most well-known scriptures in our Bible. The references to treasures in heaven and not storing up wealth on this earth. And finally, the illustration of wise and foolish builders, along with many more most famous words of Christ. And in these three chapters, Jesus really lays out for his followers, for us today as much as those who sat at his feet on the mountainside, what the kingdom should look like, what life in his kingdom should be. And if his words spoken here in the Sermon on the Mount were practiced by all, particularly in the church, then I trust that the church and indeed the world would be a far better place to live. More and more, though, I think it's fair to say, we seem to be finding Jesus' words at odds with the teachings of our world. The ethical teaching of Jesus found here in Matthew 5-7 through 7 stands very firmly against the values and morality that our world preaches. Just a few that crop up as we read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' views on marriage and divorce. Jesus' teaching on sexual ethics and being faithful. Jesus' teaching on money and how to live generously. And ultimately, his claim to be the unique foundation upon which to build your life. All of these teachings now grate firmly against our modern culture. A little bit of an interesting aside. I preached a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount about six years ago, I found as I looked it up. And at that time, I researched speeches that changed the world. I found a number of lists of greatest speeches of all time or most impacting speeches in the lives of people. And the Sermon on the Mount was always in the top two or three, if not number one. Closely rivaled by Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Well, when I went looking at similar lists just this past week, 
The Sermon on the Mount wasn't even on them. I found it in one list of great speeches at number 33. I think that anecdotally shows just how far our world is moving away from Christ's teaching. That a sermon once considered the greatest speech of all time has now fallen off the top ten list because it stands so against what our world believes. But we shouldn't be surprised, I think, that our world rejects Jesus' teaching here. These words are intended for those who would call themselves disciples, followers of Jesus, those who would gladly and willingly sit under his teaching. We see that there in Matthew 5, verse 1. Matthew writes, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. These words are intended for Jesus' disciples. And if you are a follower of Christ, it is my prayer that as we study his teachings, he will shape and mold our hearts and lives to better serve him. But if you are someone who has not come to faith, let me encourage you to be open to hearing Jesus' words. You may not like or agree with them, but these are the teachings of the one we here believe is our Lord and Saviour. Now, over the coming weeks, we're going to be delving into those Beatitudes, and particularly we're going to be referencing Matthew's Gospel where we can to show how Jesus embodies these Beatitudes. But for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to share with you two lenses through which you can view the Sermon on the Mount, two particular ways to look at the Sermon that you might see it in more fullness. The first we touched on last week, that is that Jesus is the new and better Moses, and we're going to look at the Sermon through that lens. The second is that Jesus is the new and better David, or that he is the Davidic king that was promised, and we'll look at the sermon through that lens also. But let's begin with Jesus as the new Moses. And a quick recap again for those who weren't here last week or who have perhaps forgotten. Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is the new Moses, not by naming it as such, but by showing how Jesus' story aligns with Moses's. Jesus, too, is called up out of Egypt. He passes through the waters as he's baptized in the Jordan. He spends 40 days, not years, in the wilderness being tempted and tried by Satan before he begins his ministry. His story echoes that of Moses and Israel. And at that point, Jesus then goes up the mountain, we read, to teach God's word. Just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai, Jesus ascends this mount to preach God's word. And the people were expecting someone like this. At the time, it's true, some may not yet have come to believe that Jesus was this new and better Moses. 
But generally speaking, there was an expectation that someone was coming who would fill that role. Let me show you why I can say that in your Bibles, if you have them. Please come back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy, of course, the last book that we studied in some detail here at NBC. I trust most of you would be familiar with it now. In Deuteronomy 18 from verse 15, God makes a promise to Moses. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Back into Matthew's Gospel. See, friends, that Jesus was an anticipated figure. The Israelites were expecting a prophet. They weren't sure when, but they were anticipating God coming good on this promise that a prophet like Moses would arise and speak the very word of God. And in Matthew's gospel, we see that he has proven that Jesus is this prophet whose own story mimics that of Moses. We're supposed to see the similarities. We're supposed to see that Jesus is this new Moses, this promised prophet. And having demonstrated that Jesus is this one, Matthew records how he stood on a mountainside and then sat to teach God's word. Now, one very important difference that we need to note between Moses and Jesus as we read the Sermon on the Mount is that unlike Moses, Jesus does not simply relay God's word. Moses acted, if you like, as something of a conduit between God and Israel. He stood on the mountain to receive God's law directly and then passed it down to Israel. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks directly to his people. Not relaying his father's words, but speaking them for himself. He speaks as God directly and he speaks with authority. That is what the people conclude at the end of the sermon, that he is one who speaks with authority, and they mean with the authority of God. But just as Moses stood and gave law, so Jesus gives explicit comment on law here in the sermon. There in Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, 
Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, like Moses, declares that God's law is unchanging, that it will stand forever. But then Jesus goes on to bring clarity to the law. He doesn't dismiss the law. He doesn't remove the law. But he pulls back the veil a little. He explains more fully how the law should apply to the life of one who dwells in the kingdom of heaven. If you've got your Bibles there in Matthew chapter 5, look at some of the subheadings that you have, inserted by our modern editors, of course, things like murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye, and love for enemies. Look at how Jesus starts each of these sections. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And then Jesus goes on to explain that murder can be equated to any form of hatred. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife. And on he goes. Again in verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. 38, you have heard that it was said. And 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Notice that Jesus here takes the law and he doesn't dismiss it. He says, you have heard that it was said. This is what Moses' law states. And this is how it applies more fully. Jesus as the new and better Moses makes the teaching of God clearer than it has been before. And surprisingly, the expectation rises under Jesus. We're often tempted to think that under grace, we no longer need to worry about law. But notice that Jesus takes those old teachings and by bringing clarity to them, he raises the expectation that not only will we not kill people, we won't hate them. Not only will we not cheat on our spouses, but we won't even look lustfully at others. Jesus' expectations and the clarity he brings are greater than what Moses had given before. And then he urges us to know that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, we will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Praise be to God that he is the one who enables us through Jesus to achieve that righteousness. But what we need to see here as we engage with the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus speaks not just as a rabbi, not just as a another teacher or perhaps as a good man, as some would claim. He speaks as the promised prophet with the authority of God himself, not as the teachers of the law did, not even as Moses did. He speaks greater truth so that his followers, his disciples might truly live 
lives worthy of the kingdom of God in which we are invited to see ourselves not simply as servants, residents in the kingdom, but as children of the king. That promise we, of course, see in the Lord's Prayer where we can address God as Father. And finally, Jesus demonstrates that he is the great prophet when he concludes this sermon. If you jump across to 7.24, Jesus, having having given clarity of the law and having given this great moral teaching to his disciples, says this, 7.24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Then we have that comment on the crowd. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Notice as Jesus concludes his teaching here that he claims that it is his words upon which people should build their lives. He does not simply speak as Moses did as an instrument of God. He speaks as God himself. Build your life on my word, says Jesus. In Hebrews 1.1, the author there picks up this very same idea, saying, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. When we see, friends, that Jesus is the new and better Moses, that he is the promised prophet, when we read his words in that lens, we will better experience the big story of the Bible. We will rightly be able to see how the Old and New Testaments work together. We will see how all Scripture points to Christ. And then we also will rightly divide the word of God, rightly understanding the place of law and how it teaches us to live. We will understand that the law in and of itself cannot save, but that it can show saved disciples the way God desires we live. When we see Jesus in this new prophetic role, we learn how to truly be his disciples. My encouragement is that as we embark on our deep and rich study of the Beatitudes, we will seek to see it through this lens that Jesus is proclaiming it as God himself. And we'll see that what he has to say to us stands against much of what our world teaches and proclaims. So prepare ourselves, we pray, to stand against the world. Secondly, and Finally, I want to look at the Sermon on the Mount with an understanding that Jesus stands in the line of David. 
that Jesus is that promised Messiah in David's line who rules on the eternal throne. Again, if you have your Bibles, come back to our Old Testaments, this time to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel, chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 11. The context is that David has decided to build a temple for God. And God is in the process of telling David that that is not his task, that another will be raised who will build a temple. In 2 Samuel 7 from verse 11, the prophet speaks to David saying, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This prophecy spoken to David is in one sense fulfilled by his son Solomon, or fulfilled in his son Solomon, who would indeed build the temple of the Lord there in Jerusalem, a temple that would stand for many, many years. But we need to see, as often is the case, the promise is more than just a son who would build a temple. This promise is of an eternal throne and one who will reign on it forever. And we see in our New Testaments that Jesus is that promised son of David. In Luke chapter 132, the angel speaking to Mary says, He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Luke makes explicit what Matthew demonstrates in Jesus' genealogy, that Jesus is this descendant of David who will sit on the throne eternally. Jesus is the new great promised king, the eternal king. And so when Jesus sits to deliver the Sermon on the Mount, he is, in a very real sense, giving a king's speech. And this is very important, biblically speaking. You see, kingship throughout Israel's history is not simply about a ruler telling others how to live. It is not about a king who sits in the comfort of a palace and tells others, this is what you should do. No, the kingly figure in Israel's history was a crucial one. As the king goes, so the people go. When they are ruled by a God-honoring, God-loving, God-fearing king, 
Israel tend to live well under God's instruction and at peace with God himself. When the king strays from the truth, he tends to take the people with him. And we see that all throughout the books of Kings and Chronicles. When there is a God-honoring king, Israel is at peace. When there is a godless king, Israel falls apart. What we need to see is that the kingly figure was expected to be a leader and a demonstration of living for God. If you watch any of those classic movies that have great battle scenes where two armies ride into one another to fight, you can think of your Braveheart movies or your Lord of the Rings. There are two different kinds of kings and rulers that are often presented. There are those that stand at the back of their troops, urging and directing them forward. And there are those that stand at the front of their troops, racing in first. Biblically speaking, that is the kind of king Israel should have had. One who charges in leading the way for the people to follow, for better or for worse. Back in Israel's history in the story of David and Goliath, we see this quite clearly. David steps forward, not yet as king, but as God's chosen man. And he fights the giant Goliath. And the fate of Israel is bound to the king, or the man who would be king. As David goes, so the people will go. Another positive example in Israel's life is Josiah a king who is described as a man after God's own heart, who reforms the wayward people and urges them back to God when they have fallen away. Jesus is such a king, one who leads the way and whose people follow him. And again, it was foreseen that such a king would come. Again, back in Deuteronomy, this time in chapter 17, I'll read from verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, this is an instruction for all kings, he is to write for himself a scroll, a cop- on a scroll, a copy of the law taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This was the instruction to all kings. That they should be men who lived by God's law so that they might lead God's people well. And when Jesus stands or sits on the mountainside to preach his king's speech... He does that thing. He proclaims the law of God to people. But we see that he doesn't simply offer instruction in Matthew's gospel. He equally models it himself. When he calls us not to be hateful, we see that Jesus has no hate in him. When he calls us not to lust, we see that Jesus remains pure in his sexuality. When 
he tells us to love our enemies, we see that Jesus can even forgive those who are crucifying him. Jesus is the king who not only proclaims instruction, but lives it out and models it himself. And when he tells us that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, he not only models it, but he makes it possible that we too might be righteous. In his death and resurrection, in the giving of his spirit, he enables us to receive his righteousness. And so Jesus makes it, it, makes it possible for us to obey, to obey his impossible instructions. We forgive because we're forgiven. We're generous because he provides. We're blessed because of what he has achieved. We enter the narrow path because he has trod it out for us. We seek the blessings of the Beatitudes because Christ embodied each of them. What we need to see as we read the Sermon on the Mount, as we study the Beatitudes, is that Jesus is the King who has modeled each of these truths for us. Our King has made the way for us to live. He has lived the life that we can't. He has fulfilled the law that we couldn't so that we might follow in his footsteps. When we read the Sermon on the Mount with eyes on Christ as King, it should evoke in us a deep sense of gratitude that Christ has gone before us. And it should stir in us a desire to live for him as he instructs. And it brings us the comfort and the knowledge that it can be done because Christ has made it possible. If we are to live as true disciples of Jesus, then my encouragement is that we would indeed come and sit at his feet as he teaches us. As he teaches us as our Lord, our prophet, and as our king. Learn from him and live for him. It is my encouragement, friends, over the coming week in preparation for our study of the Beatitudes. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read it a number of times. Read it with the idea that Christ is the prophet in your mind. Read it with the knowledge that Christ is king in your mind and pray that he would make it ever so real and pertinent to your life that we might live for him. Let me pray that we might be enabled to do that this week. Would you join with me in prayer? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Christ we can indeed address you as Father that through Christ we can be considered children of God, heirs to the kingdom of heaven. We thank you that Christ is indeed our King and that he has lived a life that we could not so that we might share in the blessings and promises that he has won for us. We thank you that he is a prophet who speaks 
the very word of God, for he is God himself. We pray, Lord, that over this coming term, as we continue to study his word in Matthew's gospel, that you might enable us to not simply comprehend the truths he preached, but to apply them to our lives and to our church as a whole. May we as disciples of Jesus truly hear his instruction and live according to his plans and purpose for our life. We ask that as we do that, he would be honoured and others would come to know who he is and to join the ranks of disciples around this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.